Wasn't that a great story that Jason shared with us, encouraging and uh, true to life? Uh, Kids, I do have a mission for you. We're entering into a new series called Good Faith, and we're going to be going through the story of Daniel. And in the multi-purpose room, um, we have some pictures that I need you to fill in because we're going to be covering Daniel 1 through 4 for the next four weeks, and then we have two weeks of break. And we're going to put together a little recap video of chapters 1 to 4 when we get back to chapter 5, and it will have pictures drawn by the kids, um, and James will be narrating a little bit of the story. So here's the thing. If you don't grab these and draw for me, I'm going to draw pictures for you and say that you drew them. So I need your help. You do, Ask Lexi. She and I had a drawing contest uh, just the other day, and I beat her decisively with my stick figures. So let's open our Bibles to Daniel 1, Daniel chapter 1. Now, Daniel is a little bit tougher of a book to find in the Scriptures. Uh, The easiest way is to go to your front portion of your Bible index and find Daniel in the page number. But if you want to learn how to navigate the Bible a little better, the, the next thing you can do is you can open your Bible to the halfway point, which gets you to the book of Psalms. And then you're making your way over to the right in your Bible past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. There's these major prophets that we call major because they wrote big books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you will find Daniel after that, Daniel chapter 1. Now, as we think about Daniel, I'm going to frame Daniel with this sentence, see if it rings true. America is no longer a Christian nation. America is no longer a Christian nation. At least that's what a lot of people say. And some people might still look at us as a Christian nation, especially nations that are outside of America, but I don't think that we view ourselves that way any longer. For many years, Christian leaders and pastors have been saying that if America continues on a trend, a drift, away from the moral values and the belief systems, then we are going to find ourselves in a season of consequence. And you can go back even a hundred years, preachers have been saying this. Well, the year now is 2020, and I would say much of what they have said has happened. And we're no longer uh, the Christian nation that we once were, that we were built upon. In fact, in some ways, we're almost opposite of some of the values that we were built upon as a nation. Now, many Christians are feeling it. Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman, they wrote a book that I would commend to you, a very good book called Good Faith. And that's where I got the title for this series, actually. And in their research, they found that Many of you Christians are feeling overwhelmed and sidelined, even typecast as bigoted, judgmental, and hypocritical. So the sense that many Christians are feeling is that society now is hostile to faith. And it's, it's not just a feeling, is it? Uh, in fact, the, the, the perception among people that don't follow faith is they look at Christianity as they say that you are irrelevant and extreme. And listen to what else they say. They say, the authors note, one-third of college-age adults want nothing to do with religion. 
59% of Christian youth drop out of church at some point in their 20s. It's the new reality on the ground. Culturally, it seems like a landslide victory for the other side, whoever the other side is. And here are some words that they found as they surveyed Christians on how they are feeling. 54% of practicing Christians said they feel misunderstood. Persecuted, 52%. Marginalized, 44%. Sidelined, 40%. Silenced, 38%. Afraid to speak up, 31%. Afraid to look stupid, 23%. Now, I'm not telling you all of this this morning so that we walk out of church and feel really discouraged. That's not my goal. But I do want you to understand that you're not alone. You're you're not alone in the current moment. You're not alone in biblical history. You're not alone in church history. In fact, the dominant experience of Christians throughout history has been not to be the majority, but to be the minority. And to learn how to live and practice faith in the midst of a culture that does not hold our values and does not practice our beliefs. So how do we do that? How do we practice good faith in a society that says you're irrelevant and extreme? How do you resist the pull when society says conform or else? Well, as we look at the Bible, especially this book, the book of Daniel, I think that Daniel provides us theological conviction and also practical model for how we can live in the midst of our culture and do it well. And that's why I'm so excited about this book, because it's important to adopt the message of Daniel, to live the message of Daniel, and to see the good fruit that comes as a result. So let's begin with the context of Daniel's story. This is Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So here's the context. The year is 605 B.C. Daniel would have been a teenager, 14, 15 years old, when he was forcibly removed from his land. Nebuchadnezzar is a general right now. A couple of months later, his father will pass away and he will ascend to the throne. And he's just won a decisive victory over Egypt. As he's making his way up into the region, he comes then to Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim, king of Jerusalem, folds his hand. He doesn't even put up a contest. He allows Nebuchadnezzar to walk into the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar walks right into the temple. He takes the treasures of the temple of God, but he also takes with him some national treasure, which any nation would consider national treasure, the youth the noble youth, the culture. Now, these young men enter into a program of indoctrination and assimilation. It was typical for Babylonians to take these 14-year-old boys and put them through a strict three-year program of learning. Everything from the, the language to Babylonian history and religion and court practice and court procedure. The goal is for these boys to become Babylonianized. 
so that they can be advisors to the king. And the logic's pretty simple. Youth are moldable. They're really moldable. If you spoil them, if you show them that they can become prominent in society, if you invest in them, not only will these youth come into your program and serve you, they will be your strongest advocates. So we continue in Daniel, and let's take a look at the program, verses 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, what you have to do in Daniel 1 is put yourself in the shoes of these boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. How strong do you think the pull for these boys would have been to abandon the God of their youth, the God that they had grown up in in their home, were told day in and day out that he's the God of the universe in the midst of this Babylonian culture and bow the knee to their main God of their pantheon of gods, Marduk. There's pressure on all sides, isn't there? Think about the pressures they faced. One of the pressures is state coercion, right? State coercion. You either get with the program, you get ahead in the program, or you lose your head. And for Nebuchadnezzar and his administration, it makes no difference. Now, I think about us as Christians living in America, and I can say Pretty honestly, I don't think we are facing this kind of state coercion right now, but there are other brothers and sisters around the world that are. Brothers and sisters in China and Iran and other places of the world living under brutal regimes that say either assimilate or be eradicated. Another form of pressure that these boys faced was pure pressure. Everyone's doing it. Do you think that Daniel and his three friends were the only Jewish boys in this program? I don't think so. In fact, I would imagine that as they were sitting around dinner together or maybe at night in their bunk room, wherever they slept, there were other Jewish boys coming up to them and saying, look, I know that you want to follow the law of God, but we're in Babylon right now and we've got to get this right if we're going to survive here. There's also the pressure of anonymity. Who would know? Who would care? We're over 900 miles away from home right now. Who's going to know anything? There's also the pressure of achievement because they've been ripped from their land, and not only could these boys survive in Babylon, but they could thrive. They could rise to the upper echelon of society. Or the pressure of motivation. Why obey God? You know, we 
followed God. We did what God wanted us to do. And we were brought here in chains and forced to march 900 miles from the place that we call home. Why, why obey him? You see, friends, these are the pressures. The pressures that these teenage boys, right, faced. Coercion, peer pressure, anonymity, advancement, motivation. And you actually don't have to find yourself back in ancient Babylon to appreciate these kind of pressures because I think that we face these kind of pressures today. Think of it like this. Outside of your Christian circle of influence, how many people do you know that walk with Christ? How many people in your realms and spheres of influence, if you were to ever give up on one of the major moral tenets of your faith, would think any differently of you if you did? In fact, some of them might cheer you along as you did it. How many of you live in work environments like Jason Staten where there will come a time where there will be a crossroad where you'll have to make a certain decision and your job might be on the line? Or think of it from the motivational level. How many times have you thought to yourself, does my faith really make a difference in the real world? You see, when you live in Babylon, the message is clear. Assimilate or else. That's the scenario Jason faced. That's the scenario we'll face. <laughs> Either be viewed as irrelevant or relevant. Either get with the program, accepted as mainstream, or marginalized as extreme. So how do we live in the midst of a culture like this? Well, let's look at what Daniel does. I want you to see what he does in verses 8 through 16. The text says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should we see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward with the chief of the eunuchs, um, who had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's table. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So what is Daniel's dilemma? Well, it centers around convictions in God's law, right? Uh, on one hand, you had these ceremonial food laws that the Jewish people were taught according to the law of Moses. And in Babylon, either one, it would break the law outright, meaning there would be certain animals that were presented that they should not be eating, or in the way it was prepared. As well, the, the Babylonians would offer their food before their pantheon of gods, 
and then they would go and they would serve it to these young boys. Basically, in eating and partaking of the food, Daniel and his friends would be indirectly worshiping the god Marduk. Now, this is an impossible situation when you think about it. Impossible. On the one hand, if you eat the food, you abandon everything you've ever believed. But on the other hand, if you don't eat the food, what do you do? You starve. You starve in Babylon, and and you're no good to anyone dead. So Daniel shows us a different way. Because sometimes we look at situations and we see them as impossible because we say to ourselves, it's either or. But Daniel sees that he can practice good faith in the midst of this culture. Now, what do I mean? You know, we've used this expression, good faith, a couple of times. And what I mean when I'm talking about good faith is I'm talking about our ability to remain faithful in the midst of culture, even when culture moves away from our values and our beliefs. Now, there's different ways of approaching culture, isn't there? Uh, Some people of faith, believers, say that my job is to condemn culture. All the things that are going on in the world, well, I disapprove of those things, and I'm going to let everyone know, and I'm going to condemn. I remember when I was in college, there was a gentleman who would come to the college campus, and he would hold up a big sign once a year, and the big sign read, everyone's going to hell. And then he had a bunch of derogatory names for different sinful habits that people struggled with on the college campus. And I got to tell you, he didn't change the culture of Marshall University. In fact, if anything, I had to go around apologizing to people that I was a Christian after he visited. Well, if condemning culture doesn't work, I would also say to you that condoning culture doesn't work. Condoning is this idea that even though I don't fully agree with what culture's doing, I just get to a place where I start accepting it. And I say, ah, I know the Bible says this about this particular moral principle, but it doesn't seem like anyone can live like this in today's world. That, that might be a little passe. People move from condoning into consuming. That when you're consuming culture, that's when you've moved away from not just not or just accepting it, but to actually living in such a way to where your practice of Christianity looks no different than how everyone else in society practices. So what's the alternative? Well, good faith is the alternative. Notice that Daniel doesn't condemn, he doesn't condone, he doesn't consume culture. Daniel cultivates what is already good in culture, and he creates new culture when something's not right. Let me say that again. He cultivates what's already good in culture, and he creates new culture when something's right, not right. How is he cultivating Babylonian culture? Well, he is immersing himself in it, isn't he? He's learning the language. He's going to the best of their schools. He's understanding how Babylonians think, and he's living in the midst of that. But notice that Daniel, while he immerses himself in the culture, he never allows the culture to immerse itself in him. He also creates. Maybe you've heard it said that Christians 
should be countercultural. Now, when I say countercultural, I don't mean abrasive. I don't mean harsh. I don't mean biting. I mean that we create our own distinct culture within the culture. Let me give you some modern-day example of this. Because I think we have culture creators here at OBC. Think about the dilemma of educating children in today's world. Now, people, as they approach this as Christians, as believers, there is a dilemma. We, we look at what is being taught within the educational system, and we say, this is not motivating or encouraging our children to follow Jesus. So dilemma is, I want my kid to be educated. But on the other hand, I don't want my kid to leave my home and not walk with Jesus. We have culture creators here. Uh, on one end of the spectrum, we have culture creators who are involved in the educational system. I was just thinking of Joy Lynn and Eric Mello. They've been attending our church and become members for a little over two years now, a year and a half. And he's involved as an administrator. She's a teacher. We also have teachers in our midst like Lori and Pierre and Ben and others in our educational system. But some culture creators have gone a different route. I know that Ava, who is singing on the stage, she's involved in Trinity Christian Academy. And they have created culture by creating a Christian school. And Kent Havener serves on the board with Trinity Christian Academy. My wife Katie and I, we felt led to homeschool our kids. So Katie is an, a great culture creator. She goes out and she finds a Christian education cohort that she believes would educate our kids well, and she starts that on CAPE. And two years later, that cohort has grown to over 30 kids being involved in community together. I hope you see here that culture creation and countercultural is not a one-size-fits-all type of thinking. There are different ways to be countercultural within the culture. In fact, it's all about approach. How do we approach it? Well, Kinnaman and Lyons suggest three words that frame and explain Daniel's approach in Daniel chapter 1. Love, believe, and live. And I want to unpack these with you as we see it in Daniel. Think first about love. You hear Christians often talk about love. We sing about love. And we know that love boils down to two great commandments. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the problem with the world is not that there is a lack of love in the world, I would suggest. But it's that we love the wrong things. So you can think of it like this. Either people love something more than they love God, or two, they don't love someone they disagree with well. Well, Daniel loves in both ways. He loves God's law, but he also loves those he disagrees with well. I love how he humbly approaches Ashpenaz in the story. He goes up to him and he says, I can't eat this food. Give me an alternative diet. And Ashpenaz says, listen, I like you, Daniel, 
But if I change your diet and you come out worse for wear, I'm going to lose my head. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to Ashpenaz in the story. If I wasn't walking with Christ, I get where he's coming from. I like the space that occupies this part of my body between my head and my shoulders, and I'd like that to remain intact. And you know what else? I think Daniel understood that. So what does he do? He creates culture. He goes to the steward who's over them and he says, let me spend 10 days proving to you that a diet that we have used in my people, with my people for years, is very effective for building us up, strengthening us. And he says, if it doesn't go well, fine. You get to decide what happens to us next. So here it is. This is a truth that we have to understand as we practice good faith. Daniel approached culture like this. He had soft edges. He loved the people around him. He had concern for them and care. But he had a firm center. He believed God's word with the very core of his being. And Christian, we must have soft edges and firm centers. Now, that leads us to the next word, doesn't it? Believe. Daniel, get this, even as a teenager, okay, I'm going to talk to teens for a minute right now. You can live faithfully in the midst of this culture. It's possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. And he did this by living by biblical conviction. In fact, those of us who just kind of go with the flow, we're not leaders. Leaders, Albert Mullert said in his book, Convictional uh, Leadership, he says, leaders are believers. Leaders have convictions, core values that, that move them and cause them to stand out from the group. Listen to what he says. The leadership that matters most is convictional, deeply convictional. This quality of leadership springs from those foundational beliefs that shape who we are and establish our beliefs above everything else. Convictions are not merely beliefs we hold. They are those beliefs that hold us in their grip. I agree with that. And I believe that we need more convictional Christians. What do I mean by convictional? I mean Christians that believe that the Bible is God's word and they want to know it and they want to live it out in their life. You know, there's so many people today that are convictional, and there's even Christians that are convictional, but they're finding their convictions in the wrong places. It's either public opinion or political thought or, worse of all, little pithy statements that are propagated on social media and shared and liked. Friends, that's not going to lead to conviction and convictional leadership. And I'm especially speaking to my generation and younger because we're so tempted in my generation and younger to walk away from the Bible, to say it's no longer relevant. We, we, we put our friendships and, 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 and this value of we want people to consider us reasonable above the eternal word of God. Well, let me say this. If you really love the people around you, you will love the Bible. Because the Bible talks to us about what is orderly and right and what produces human 
flourishing. So it turns out that good love and good belief are not antithetical. They can live in the same space. In fact, they always must live in the same space. Which brings me then to the third point, live. Os Guinness in his book, Renaissance, writes this, the Christian faith must always be open to scrutiny on two levels. One, concerning its credibility. Two, concerning its plausibility. So credible is the idea that you can put the Christian faith under the microscope, apply scrutiny to it, and it holds up. It's credible because it's true. Plausible, on the other hand, is the idea that the Christian faith seems true as people watch Christians living out the Christian faith. You remember a couple of weeks ago that I talked about the church is called to put paint on the invisible man, meaning Christ is invisible to the culture, but when his people live out the faith in real tangible ways, it's like splashing paint all over Christ. I I just heard an awesome story between services where uh, Jen Hevener was talking to me about a co-worker or, or a friend that she knew, and, and they work in the industry of physical therapy. And this friend was just simply saying to her that every time there's a person that says that they're loved well by their, their church, it's always Osterville Baptist Church. Now, I got to tell you, that's putting paint on the invisible man, and that's what Daniel does in verse 9, Right? It says what? That God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. He was standing out. He was living what he believed. So how do you do that? How do you love well and believe well? And and those beliefs come out in the everyday places where you go. Let me ask you about belief. Do you really know the Bible? Or do you just know, you know, little statements and pithy words about the Bible? Live is like the active ingredient of yeast in a bread that you are making. If you don't put yeast in the bread, then you don't get that bread that that is active and alive, that rises, that bread that when it comes out of the oven, you just can't wait. Your mouth is watering to bite into it. And it's more like that, that matzah cracker. It really just is unsavory and doesn't have a lot of flavor. So these are the ingredients of good faith. Here's the formula. How well we love, plus what we believe, plus how we live equals good faith. That's the kind of faith that stands out in the world. That's the kind of faith that God honors. And notice that God does honor Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's faith. Look at the next verses, 17 to 21. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Now notice cultivating and creating. They cultivated culture. They learned Babylonian culture better than the best. But creating culture... They were able to find a way to maintain faithfulness in the midst of Babylonian culture, and they stood out like leaders. Nebuchadnezzar valued the difference, and he put them in a position of prominence. Now, before we close, I want us to see the main point of Daniel, and we haven't talked about it yet. We've skipped over it a little bit. You see, there is a theological truth that is budding. It's only beginning to bud in the beginning of Daniel 1. Now, as you make your way through Daniel, I've seen this happen a lot. People can actually work through Daniel 1 through 6 and miss the entire reason as to why Daniel wrote. Uh, you, you, you maybe have heard expressions from Daniel as you've heard it taught, dare to be a Daniel. Now, I would suggest to you that that is a lesser theological truth than the core theological truth of Daniel. Because what does that say to us? Well, that says to you, work a little harder. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. If you apply extra effort in this culture, just like Daniel did in his culture, then you're going to be successful. But that misses out on the why Daniel was successful. Let's take a look. I think we're going to see it as we look through the verses. Look first with me at verse 2 and notice something that Daniel tells us. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hands and some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, notice that it doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar was strong and mighty and a military tactician and he went in and he overtook Jerusalem because of who he was. It doesn't say that, does it? It says what? The Lord gave. Interesting. Now, the term, the Lord, that Daniel uses there is the Hebrew word Adonai. And that word means owner, ruler, or sovereign. Adonai gave Jehoiakim. You also might notice that Daniel prefixes the term God with the definite article. So he refers to his God as the God. And anytime he refers to Nebuchadnezzar's God, Marduk, he says, his God. Now, what is he saying? It's a subtle point, a theological point where he's saying, Yahweh is the real God, and all these other pantheon of God gods, they're an illusion. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, again, he says something very profound. He says, and God gave. Daniel favor. So it wasn't because Daniel's handsome or beautiful or smarter than all the rest that he was successful. It must have been something to do with his God. Yes, he practiced good faith, but the ultimate results of Daniel's life rest in God. And then you look at the same thing in verse 17. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So this is the 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 first shoots of a theological truth that is going to soar to the heights of the redwoods of the West Coast. 
The point is this, as you look at Daniel. It's a truth that we all must trust. God is in control. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's so sovereign that he can send a king and tell a king to go in and conquer a territory. So sovereign that a young noble boy could be enslaved. And yet, in the midst of all that pressure, that noble boy could stand out and find favor. So sovereign that he can then take those noble boys and rise them up to the upper echelon of this society. In fact, what I'm saying to you this morning is do not dare to be a Daniel. Because there's nothing special about Daniel. There's nothing intrinsically special. Yeah, he was commendable and he's a good example, but God intended for Daniel to be Daniel. And God created you to live good faith in the world where he has placed you today. You see, it's a privilege to live in the world in the time we do. It's a privilege to be made in his image and created for his purposes And when we come to realize that, we no longer say dare to be a Daniel. We say dare to believe that God is in control. Love. Believe. Live. Practice good faith. Know that God's in control of all of your situations, all of your circumstances, all of the seasons of your life. And when you learn that truth, it makes all the difference in the world. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you are the God of history, and we're going to see that next week in Daniel chapter 2. You look at the kingdoms, and they're like ant colonies to you. You look at the world events that are happening right now, and they're no different than world events that happened 2,000, 1,500 years ago. You know that you are the God of history and that you're moving things for your purposes. And so, in light of that reality, we want to be a people of good faith. I pray over each member in this room, those who are watching online, those in the multi-purpose room, help us to be a people who love, believe, and live. Help us to be a people that practice good faith. In Jesus' name.